I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. In his 1976 manifesto, a 14-page booklet titled Testament of a Furniture Dealer, Ingvar Kamprad, founder of IKEA, outlined a simple, functional approach to design. Indeed, its nine short sections describing the IKEA values read more like an instruction book to life than an operating manual for how to run a business. If you're skeptical, I encourage you to read or even flip through this booklet yourself. And I think you'll be struck by the self-awareness, earnestness, honesty, and even modesty of IKEA's cultural roots despite all its ambitions. So it's no surprise that many parts in this episode directly or indirectly refer back to these principles. And in some ways, it's also hard not to see this work as an early proto-conceptual effort to describe terms that have only grown more important since then, namely sustainability and the circular economy. It's why I'm so excited to have our next guest, Pia Hedemark-Cook, on the show. We discuss the legacy and culture behind IKEA's sustainability strategy, as well as its commitment to becoming a fully circular and a climate-positive business by 2030. We also dig into the nature of climate commitments themselves. Why are some companies committing while others aren't? What does it reveal about how companies manage themselves across business cycles? And how should we think about setting targets, given the urgency for climate action? Pia is Chief Sustainability Officer at Inca Group, which is the largest IKEA franchisee with 374 stores in over 30 markets. Pia leads a team of sustainability professionals in the global office, as well as sustainability experts integrated across the retail, shopping center, and customer fulfillment businesses across 30 countries. Prior to this, Pia was head of sustainability in IKEA Group Retail and Expansion, embedding sustainability in IKEA's retail operations and securing a more sustainable offer to IKEA customers. Welcome to the show, Pia. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here. So the bio that I had read speaks a lot to your professional and leadership roles at Inca Group and uh, IKEA. But I'd kind of like to start at the personal level a little bit more. I guess I'm curious, given all your experience within retail, within tourism, how has that informed your kind of views around sustainability? It's a very good question uh, that makes you uh, reflect and uh, try to remember why you make decisions in life. Uh, sometimes things happen through a banana peel that you uh, happen to slide on. Um, I actually started out as a business student and um, somewhere learned about economics and uh, externalities and started to think about how everything is connected and things that you do in one part actually has an impact on someone somewhere else. And then from there started to study environmental economics and, and got into systems thinking, science but really how it all connects. And then somewhere down the line, after doing a PhD here in Sweden, I wanted to go out and do. I, I, I was uh, really interested and engaged in studying why companies are doing it and how companies are doing it or institutions, NGOs, governments, but I wanted to do. So I stepped into the tourism industry and kind of put everything that I learned into practice. And I think the key thing I learned from the tourism industry and then now also in, in retail 
where I've been the last 12 years, it's, it's, it's all about people. You can't change things if you don't get people to understand why you change. And if you can't paint a picture of where you're going. So I think that's my main learning is that this is not about science. It's not about climate change. It's not about inequality. It's not about um, biodiversity. It's, it's about society. It's about the way we are setting up life on the planet and how we want to have it and that we can decide that. Well, let's actually dive in specifically when it comes to IKEA and Inca Group. Why is the world's largest furniture retailer with side businesses in food, appliances, and home accessories, why is sustainability so important? Now, let's just start with that very broad question. Mm. I think the starting point is and has always been our vision of creating a better everyday life for the many people. And when you set out to be for the many people, there's, uh, there's a few things uh, that comes with that. One is consumer insights and, and really tuning in and listening to a life at home and what's important to people in life at home. The other one is affordability because you can't be for the many if it's too expensive. So sustainability or being smart with resources has really been part of how we started the company 76 years ago. And we see now with all the changes in resource scarcity and us being dependent on raw materials to be able to provide the products that we sell, we need to be much smarter about which materials we're using, where they're coming from, and how do we secure that we get the most out of products and materials that we put in place in order to stay affordable and being for the many people. And then the third part of the vision is a very humanistic view of life, that we are for the many people. So it's, it's just part of culture and values of how, how we want to do things, how we want to go about it. Right. You know, I think now it's it's often sort of formally called the circular economy, but it's sort of interesting that you talked on the many people. When I sort of look back at Ingvar Kompred's The Testament of a Furniture Dealer, it is sort of peppered with this proto idea of the circular economy. Yes. You know, he talks about throwaway products, but instead focusing on functional hardwearing designs. It seems very, very embedded within the culture here. Yeah. Ingvar really started by how can you make beautiful furniture that's functional? Because if it's not functional, you'll throw it out. So how do you make all of these dimensions of democratic design, so function, form, low price, quality, and sustainability into one product? And how are you smart about that? And he was always about, you know, wasting resources. And resources is people's time, it's money, it's materials. That's it's a mortal sin, as he said in the Testament for Furniture Dealer. So it, it really comes from from the beginning. Be smart how you produce things. And I mean, the worst product is the one that's been produced and never used. Mm. So let's make sure that it's being used. And the work we're doing now with circular economy is really how can we look at how do things, products, home furnishing products enter people's life? How do people take care of it? And when you are done with it, then maybe you're done with it, but someone else wants it. So how can you help and facilitate that process? So it's really looking at a completely new way of how we organize IKEA, but I would say how we organize you know, business models and, and society in the world economy. Since your role here, how have you put that into practice in terms of the sustainability strategies, the, the people and planet mm -hmm. uh, positive? Mm -hmm. I mean, we've been working with sustainability for quite a while. And the way we see sustainability is really how can we create a better everyday life for the many? Or for, for as many as the many. 
So it's economic, it's social and environment. Because if you if you go all in and you maximize profit or benefit for a few people at the detriment of many, then you haven't really been for the many people and created a better everyday life. If you go all in on environment, but maybe you go bankrupt because you focus so much on that or the social aspect, then you're not for the many either. So it's really finding the sweet spot between the three. And I think that was really the core from the beginning. And our first strategy actually is from 1989. Our I-Way, our code of conduct for suppliers is from 2000. And then we launched the first People and Planet Positive in 2012, where we took a step outside in again and wanting to develop a strategy for the business, not for the specialists, but really for the business. So we made it much more concrete than previous strategies. And we tried to paint a more of a picture of why is this relevant for us as a business. So it was three areas, healthy and sustainable living, climate positive and circular and fair and equal. And those three are really connected to three challenges or opportunities that we see in the world. Uh, one is unsustainable consumption, one is inequality, and the third one is climate change. So we're really trying to tackle how can we, in Inca, we are a retailer, home furnishing retailer, uh, and together with our friends in Interikea that provides uh, the products and the supply chain. What's our take on this? How can we contribute? Hmm. One of the pretty remarkable ambitions within uh, the strategy is to go carbon, not neutral, but carbon negative by 2030, which I find really interesting because Microsoft more, most recently has gotten a lot of press for, for making that same announcement. It's a software business. IKEA is a materials-oriented business. Why make that kind of commitment? Mm -hmm. There's two questions in the question. One is why and the other one is how. Yes. How are, gonna go, how are you going to do that? I mean, why is fundamentally understanding two things. One is that we have a big impact. We, we are using a lot of materials. Uh, we have a big footprint. We are in many countries. And we are dependent on a stable climate for us to be able to find the resources that we need. Climate change will not only impact the people who live around our stores and our co-workers, but it will also impact our entire supply chain. So it's it's a kind of a, a make or break question for us as an industry. Uh, so that's one. And then the other one, again, more understanding that we have a big footprint. We are a well-known brand. So how can we reach out? So we've done climate research recently with 31,000 people in uh, 30 markets, all our markets, just to understand where are they. And we see that people are increasingly concerned. More and more people understand that this is human made. It's coming from our everyday activities, but they find it too expensive, too difficult, and they don't really know what has a big impact. So what should I focus on as a person, as a consumer, as a citizen? So we are in a lot of people's life through our furnitures. So how can we go in and be relevant and, and support people in this journey? So that's, I, I would say, it's why we're doing it. And how it's fundamentally changing everything we do and really looking at how we set up our supply chain, our, our material sourcing, understanding. So a lot of knowledge, data, where is our biggest uh, footprint, which materials contributes the most to our footprint, which part of our operations uh, contributes to the most. Um, and then from from that knowledge, uh, materiality assessment is to really look at what do we need to do then? So it's not offsetting. It's not about continuing business as usual. It's fundamentally moving away from certain materials, really understanding uh, the, the whole supply chain. It's uh, shifting away from fossil. So renewable energy, carbon-free heating and cooling, 
a strong focus on energy efficiency because that's the starting point. Don't waste energy. Looking into customer's life because a big part of our footprint is in the product use. How can we have more effective, efficient products to customers? How can we help people to make small steps? And we know that if someone decides to maybe start with LEDs or they talk to a friend about uh, the impact of meat, uh, then they make changes in other parts of life. So it's not only about what products does IKEA have in the range, but if you start to change your LEDs or your waste sorting, you get inspired to also look at how do I go to work or how do I go to school? And it's all these triple effects uh, that really will start. So for us, it's a lot about what we do as a company, but then to become carbon or climate positive, it's really working with all our suppliers. How can we work with them so that they shift towards renewable and then with our customers and then advocacy is a big part. So we're members of uh, We Mean Business, RE100, um, a lot of these organizations, we set science-based targets a few years ago. We committed to the one and a half degree pledge last year in September. So stepping in there saying, we think this is important. We think we can play a role and we think we can do it. And hopefully other companies can do it too, because if we can, others can. I kind of want to stick on this because I, I think these kinds of commitments are really important. You find that some companies are doing them very few right now and others aren't. And I'm always sort of kind of curious why companies are doing this and, and what they're taking into consideration and what the challenges are and, and how they're even determining which commitments are the most important and the ones they want to, you know, elevate publicly. I had a really interesting conversation during Unilever Sustainability Day, and they were sort of going through this calculus right now. And their feedback was that commitments like this can be powerful, but they need to be ambitious. They need to be consistent and they need to be very transparent. And when you lose that consistency and that transparency and yeah. they become unambitious, they lose their, their power. I fully agree with my colleagues uh, in, in Unilever. I think one learning we took from the 2012 strategy, which we built on uh, for this one, is the, the, the power of 100%. So no one can opt out. Because if you say that we're going to be at 80%, then there's always a group saying, oh, but I'll going to be the 20%. I think the starting point, again, is materiality. It's understanding what makes sense for us. I mean, we have the SDGs and they're fantastic and they guide you know, society, governments, uh, companies. Um, but not every company is as equally relevant in each of the SDGs. So you need to understand where do we cause the most harm? Because, I mean, it is also we, we do have a negative impact if we're not responsible. And understanding also where can we have a positive impact? Where are there growth opportunities? Where are the opportunities for IKEA? And having that understanding, then you can't set stretch goals on everything. But for us, it's been around climate, it's around circular, it's around healthy and sustainable living because we are a home furnishing company. We are not, you know, something else. Uh, so I would say for some companies, it makes much more sense to make goals in areas where we are not at all. But it's setting stretch goals. And, you know, if you set a goal, which is easy to set, and it's not the right goal, it needs to be a goal that makes the business together collectively feel like, how are we going to manage? How are we going to do this? And we've had a few of those where when we set them 10 years ago, we actually didn't know how we would get there. We had kind of an idea, but we didn't know fully. And that creates so much energy in the organization and the specialists, and I don't mean the specialists in my team, I really mean the business experts, the ones who are out on the field, they will kind of feel like, okay, 
this is where we want to go as a company. I connect to this because I believe in this company. I want to work in this company. I'll figure it out. So when we decided, for example, a few years ago to join EV100 to say that we would only have, so we would have 100% zero emission uh, home deliveries in 2025. We discussed so much. Should it be 2025? Should it be 2030? Will the technology even be there in 2025? But then we we kind of betting on exponential growth. So two years ago, we had 0%. We don't have 0% today. And it's thanks to a very clear direction from us, uh, from, from the company, to our colleagues in fulfillment. And they are just finding ways of how are we going to go about it. And then we, we fail sometimes. Then we learn. We share the knowledge. Uh, and then, you know what, if we get to 95%, it's better than zero. Yeah, so I completely agree on you on this point. And I appreciate that you keep calling it stretch goals because I feel like these kinds of commitments, like I said, need to be really ambitious. And we need to allow a bit of room for companies to make as ambitious the commitment as possible on the possibility that potentially maybe they don't make it. But if, if they get 95% there relative to not even making that commitment, that's pretty powerful. Yeah, and I think this is where all of us play a role because... You know, as much as I fundamentally agree in stretching goals and in daring to test and learn and fail and finding a regulatory environment also where this is possible, because especially like with circularity, there's a lot of legislation that makes it difficult to test and learn. That's where we need to have the dialogue with colleagues in the governments and in policy making. But we also need very clear frameworks. So science-based targets we're not just making these goals. I mean, they're verified, they're checked. So I think the credibility comes from, yes, it's a stretch, but we are not setting them in isolation. So it's not IKEA goals made by IKEA, not checked by anyone. So I would encourage if anyone is getting into this space, work with the tools that are out there, and especially on climate, it's science. So there's as many numbers and ways of calculation as there is for normal finance. I mean, it's quite rigid. And I think that's an advantage. So when you think about the next 10 years to this 2030 commitment, what are the challenges out there? Can you talk about it? And, you know, I also think back to another podcast with Maersk, who's sort of made a very big commitment to go carbon neutral by 2050, which doesn't sound ambitious, but the reality is you're talking about big ships with lifetimes of 25, 30 years and technology that hasn't even been commercialized. So it's sort of interesting that firms are willing to make these kinds of commitments when the answers aren't clear. I think that's when the corporate culture comes in. We believe in a future where you create a better everyday life for the many people. And then with that, what are the challenges to that? And what do we need to address to get to that? And then we're optimistic. So we choose to be optimistic about the future. So we have, as a company, said that science-based targets, we don't want climate change at three degrees. We want it at one and a half, max two. So what do we need to do to get to that? And then I think the challenge is, it, you know, prioritization, there's many things going on. I mean, we're running a home furnishing company at the same time as making it more sustainable. But staying creative and working close to the business to find the solutions and daring to test small to see if something works and not being too rigid in terms of this is the solution and being a bit agnostic. And I think sometimes for us, maybe it's easier because... Yes, we have invested a lot in the buildings, but, you know, like with, with food now, which we know is a big footprint coming from how we eat. And we we serve meatballs, we serve hot dogs, 
And we are now shifting more and more away to plant-based or at least giving the option so people can choose. And it's not that we don't need to serve this or we don't need to have this material. We can find other ways. So if I look at our stores, I mean, that's where we use a lot of our energy. We haven't said as a company that we need to fuel these stores with fossil. We just want to have light and we want warm or cooling for our customers. So if you can provide that with solar and wind, which you can today at a better price than the old technology, then we shift. And that, of course, for some sectors is more difficult because you're heavily invested in one specific part of the industry. But for us, it's we're the same with home delivery. We haven't said that we need to deliver with the combustion engine. We can do it with electric. We just want to get the stuff to customers as soon as possible with as small footprint as possible. What do you do about another big problem, which is the problem of growth, just organic growth and the fact that scope one and scope two emissions are naturally going to increase as you grow? And, and how do you think about sort of decoupling those emissions from the idea of growth? Mm, I think that's important. And we have actually set our science-based target on absolute. So we have an absolute target, not a relative, because at every company needs to start to get to the point where do we decouple? And for us, a lot of this sits in circular. When we can start to provide beautiful home furnishing to customers without having to take new raw material and virgin material out of the ground. And we are definitely not there yet, but the aim is to 2030 to be able to really map and have a plan for all the materials and also finding ways through the leasing we're testing now, uh, looking to secondhand market in a lot of our markets, finding new ways of how do you keep products alive for as long as possible. And once it gets to end of life, how do you secure that you take out the valuable pieces, I mean, all pieces really, to create a second life? So it's not an easy task. No. You know, sustainability is, it's a multidimensional problem. And we tend to sort of think about the risks rightly. But there are also opportunities through this transition. How are you thinking about it in terms of not just single plastic reduction and lower emissions and going negative carbon, but, you know, the opportunities such as home solar or different products that you can sell or plant-based meats? Mm. Again, depending on culture uh, and what works, because the risk element, of course, is critical. And we did the TCFD just recently, half a year ago. It also helps to also understand what are the risks we're taking in a four degree world uh, so we can also start to plan ahead. But for us, it works much more with being an opportunistic, optimistic company to see how can we meet the needs of people in life at home in new ways going forward. And home energy is one where we have home solar in seven markets. We are now testing completely new solutions around uh, renewable energy subscription models, uh, heat pumps and so on to really create a portfolio of home energy solutions or clean energy solutions. And that's an opportunity. And you say, oh, that's not home furnishing. No, but it's life at home. And we know that it's a big cost in life at home and it's a big footprint uh, that people have in their household. And the other one is food, of course. That's another big part. And then the third one is how you consume as a family. What are you buying from? Where are you buying? And then the fourth one is uh, how do you transport yourself? And all of those aspects we're looking at as a company. So we have electric vehicles and and also for the more uh, supply chain part of transport, we're looking at a lot of new alternative fuel solutions. And then when it comes to how people consume, it's a whole circular model. And then you have the energy part. How can we shift away from fossil? And then food. I mean, the future is plant-based protein and vegetarian. Potentially meat as a treat. And I think it's more to be 
there's opportunities in that. And, and it's fundamentally for any company, we're here to serve people. We're here to be relevant and to provide what people need, but also not at any cost, because I think it's important as a company, you know your impact uh, of your supply chain, of your uh, distribution network, much more than a customer. So you need to also reflect, is it realistic that everything should be delivered in two hours just because it's convenient? If the footprint is 10 times higher, then can we inform people that you could actually do it like this and it would be much smaller? So I think we need to, as companies, also dare to step out and not educate because it's not the right word, but at least inform people that, yes, make that choice if you want to. But did you know that... um, let's say a plant-based hot dog, it's actually got seven times smaller footprint than the normal one. And then you, it's your choice, but yes, so you know. So I think it's uh, how can we inform people more? How does something like uh, remanufacturing sort of work itself into not just the circular economy, but IKEA's sort of role within that? Mm, I think remanufacturing is a, it's a big word with many meanings. <laughs> it's true. Uh, so, I mean, if you, of course, you have that whole remanufacturing uh, in, in the supply chain where it's about being super smart in the factories and making sure that there's no waste and you reuse and you, and you fix. Then the more customer facing part is our assist corner in the store where if there's damages in the store, like exhibition products uh, that are damaged or things that are returned from customer, how can we refurbish and put them then for sale for second hand so that it lives? Um, so there's a lot really to do in remanufacturing and refurbishment but it's it's all about creating the flows because we we sell a lot of products so we need to find scalable solutions that work in a lot of places not just in one place one thing and i'm thinking back to the uh, your point around uh, 31,000 data points from the survey data just because of the size of ikea it makes for a really interesting test bed for ideas for reactions across all different sort of segments of customers. You know, in the past, IKEA Retail Canada turned off its air conditioning to simulate a four degree Celsius temperature increase, which is pretty incredible. I'd like to kind of hear what the customer reaction was from that. We've talked about plant-based meats, but how has it enhanced your ability to understand behavior and the ability to sort of change or shape it in a sustainability perspective? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a critical one, uh, but one of the most difficult when it comes to people's behavior, because we know that people say things and then they act differently. So, I mean, there's so much research showing that everyone says that they want to live sustainably, but then if you look at the facts, people are not yet. And I think, again, a lot of this comes from convenience. We're stuck in our habits, in our ways of doing. And then again, information, if you don't know that uh, this and this has an impact, you, you don't think about it. But so, yes, we get an enormous amount of insights and we're getting much better at it. And I think collectively companies and governments are getting better at it. But it's an area where I think there's more testing and learning needed to see what really sticks, because it's not just about changing, like, I don't know, eating the plant-based hot dog once and then not really changing your behavior for longer term. So, I mean, it takes 10,000 hours to to create a habit. So how do we get it to stick? Hmm. We've talked during this podcast a bit about standards and frameworks. You mentioned the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, the TCFD, the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. There's the UN Global Compact. There's the Carbon Disclosure Project. There are a lot of great frameworks and initiatives that have come out over the last decade. 
Sometimes it feels, frankly, like there's a little too many, you know, in in a way. It's always sort of a test of trying to figure out which ones are the most important for which stakeholder group. From an investor perspective, obviously, TCFD and, and the SDGs and a number of others are incredibly important. But where do you think the most relevant, important ones are for from your perspective? Again, it, it depends on are you looking at which of the SDGs are looking at. I mean, I think UN SDGs in general, because it's the total umbrella of, of everything when it comes to how we move towards a more sustainable future. And then I think it's more what sector are you in? Which topic is it you want to address? It is climate change, then it is uh, science-based targets and uh, CDP and, you know, the one and a half degree pledge and TCFD. So it's quite clear that there's many more, but those are big ones. If it's more how do you want to interact with the investment communities, then, of course, ESG structures is, is what you look at. And if you're more on the social side, look into inequality and, and decent work, then there's there's a plethora of the just transition. Yeah. So then there's so much. But I, so I would say, of course, it's easier when you're a bigger company because you have people working with different topics and they reach out to the ones they need. But I think, again, you can't change everything in one day. So what's the topic you're working on now? And then find the partner that's helping you the most in that journey right now. Because that's the key thing why we are working with a lot of NGOs, other companies, uh, partners, uh, coalitions. Is because these topics are too big for one company to manage. We need to do it together. And the solutions sit often in different sectors. So you need to work from beginning of raw material to the whole retailing part or manufacturing to retailing and then end of life. And you need to solve it systematically across the whole value chain. So there's no one company sits on the solution. So I want to finish off with a question um, about advice. A big part of the audience of this podcast are students. And I often get the question from them, what advice can you give if I'm studying sustainability from a corporate, from a financial, or from some other perspective? And people are always looking for, I think, could be books, it could be sort of role models, or sort of maybe some just very loose, abstract guidance about how to pursue this. And I guess I'm wondering... What has helped you in the last, you know, 10 to 20 years as you've developed your thinking around the circular economy and sustainability more widely? Um, People, talking to people, staying curious, realizing that, yes, I've studied at university. I uh, got my degrees, but that was 20 plus years ago. Uh, You need to constantly learn. And I think that's why I'm not just because it's a personal passion to work with sustainability, but also because I, I am a curious person who likes to learn. And there's so much to learn in this area. And the things that we are doing today, we didn't even talk about 20 years ago. And unfortunately, some things I learned 20, 25 years ago around climate change, which finally now is starting to break through to more people and, and uh, not just a small group of scientists. So it is this of um, some things are now becoming aha. Uh, and we have known for a long time. And then there's a lot of things that also thanks to digital, there's so many solutions we can create today and get people to meet and hook up that works in our favor, that were just not possible back in the 90s. I think staying curious, talking to people and staying open-minded and then uh, enjoying it because, yes, it's a challenge. It's a lot of big issues facing the world. But if you believe that whatever you do, you can do something. Everyone can do something. No one can do everything, but everyone can do something. So staying positive and curious and enjoying the journey and being creative, then uh, that would be my advice. 
Great. That's a uh, great answer. So it's been fascinating to unpack what sustainability represents to Inca Group and IKEA, the world's largest furniture retailer, how companies like Inca are reshaping their business to be part of the circular economy, and why ambitions like IKEA's commitment to go carbon negative are an essential part of climate action. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and views. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group, here today with Pia Heidenmark-Cook, Chief Sustainability Officer at Inc. Group. Many thanks for joining us on A Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks so much, Pia. Thank you. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri dash podcast or look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. And last, this podcast is an open educational resource. It's meant to be shared. And if you enjoy it, please take a second to review it on iTunes. I'm also really interested in your views, ideas, and opinions. So feel free to drop me a line at jason.mitchell at man.com.